This is exactly right. The 2020s are getting stressful. What if we go back in time to the 1920s? All those flapper dresses, champagne towers, and good old-fashioned whodunits. Now is your chance with June's Journey, the mobile mystery game that puts your detective skills to the test. This game has everything. You'll play as June Parker investigating the murder of her sister. You'll travel the world searching for clues and explore lavish estates and beautifully designed scenes from the Roaring Twenties. Each is filled with hidden objects that may lead you to the killer. There are twists, turns, and even catchy tunes. And if you play well enough, you might make it to the detective club. There you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Case Files, an award-winning podcast that presents unforgettable true crime stories. Presented by an anonymous host, Case File delves deep into the crimes, investigations, and trials of solved and cold cases from around the world. With more than 250 episodes, the podcast has covered infamous unsolved mysteries, notorious murders, and lesser-known cases that deserve more attention. Discover why everyone from Rolling Stone to Time Magazine is calling it a must-listen experience. Follow Case File wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson. I'm a journalist who's spent the last 25 years writing about true crime. And I'm Paul Holes, a retired cold case investigator who's worked some of America's most complicated cases and solved them. Each week, I present Paul with one of history's most compelling true crimes. And I weigh in using modern forensic techniques to bring new insights to old mysteries. Together, using our individual expertise, we're examining historical true crime cases through a 21st century lens. Some are solved, and some are cold. Very cold. This is Buried Bones. Hey, Kate. Uh, How's it going? It's going well, Paul. What's going on with you? We're back from the winter break. Did you miss me? I always miss you, even (laughs) when we don't have breaks. You know, it goes way too long in between recordings. (laughs) You're sweet. But uh, yeah, how uh, how did the break go for you? It goes well for me. You know, we usually have a quiet Christmas and I have, it's not complaining about my birthday, but it's, you know, lamenting a little bit that I don't have a birthday maybe in the middle of the summer. It's three days after Christmas. And then New Year's hits us right away. So I'm pretty exhausted, but I'm lucky that the girls still want to stay home with us on New Year's Eve, which is so sweet. You know, we make fondue and we hang out and watch movies all night. We watched Lord of the Rings, you know, the whole series. And so it's real sweet. And I'm just waiting for the year to come where they want to go hang out at a bar or something, probably not anytime soon. <laughs> 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 They're 14, but 
What about you? You have teenagers. Do they still want to hang out or are they out completely on New Year's Eve? You know, we are probably the most boring New Year's family ever. Um, I gave up staying up for New Year's many, many years ago. I go Hmm. to bed normal time on New Year's. I don't do the celebration. And, you know, in part, just from my career, uh, when I was being called out, you know, I was called out multiple times New Year's Eve for very, very bad things. Mm. And it's just like, you know what? I just don't want to put myself at risk on New Year's Eve. And so I stay in, you know, so... You know, I wake up uh, New Year's morning and it's like, okay, it's a new year. I have to remember that when I, you know, write my dates uh, that I have to change the the year. It's now, you know, 2024. And uh, that's uh, about as far as I go. Now, when you say bad things, I don't want to get too gruesome on New Year's, but is it domestic violence stuff or is it people shooting in a crowd at a New Year's party or something completely different? No, you know, the... Uh, the cases that I got called out on, I remember there was a homicide, not not a DV homicide, but a bar-related homicide that occurred, a stabbing. Mm. And then, actually, there was uh, one New Year's, it's almost comical, is our property room got broken into. Actually, it wasn't the warehouse itself, but they had an outdoor storage container where they kept all the, the marijuana. Oh. <laughs> and they kept it out there because... It smells, and they mm-hmm. didn't want it in, in in the the inside. Well, you know, some street urchins figured out that that's where all the marijuana was. <laughs> street urchins, <laughs> you've been with me too long. Street urchins, <laughs> they figured out where the pot was. Okay, they, they figured out where the pot was, and so they they cut into this container and uh, got chased off. And I forget exactly why they got chased off, but there was all these boxes of marijuana that had been dropped by these guys as they were running. Running away, so you know my New Year's uh, plans changed rapidly when the pager went off, and I had to go and, and respond to. Basically, it was just a, a burglary of our property room. But you know, having been out, you know, at night, of course, it's not just the responses I went out to, but the responses that my coworkers went out to. It just it seemed consistent, you know. And, and yes, there is the DV stuff. There's the alcohol you know, infused uh, aspects. And it's just like, yeah, nope, I, I don't need to be out at a bar and uh, on New Year's Eve, and I'll just go and celebrate the New Year's at some other time when it's maybe not so so risky, I guess is the way to put it. Or I think you should celebrate a London New Year's, which would hit you at 5 p.m. I think that would work out really well for you. (laughs) Do it in London. They usually have some great band playing, and that's what I think, (laughs) for sure. That that, that sounds like a good idea, actually. (laughs) It's a technicality. That's You know, you and I look for technicalities in these crimes. That's your technicality right there. There you go. (laughs) So, you know, on New Year's, I always try to steer my family when we watch stuff towards like an Agatha Christie mystery. And I always lose out to like a Harry Potter or a Lord of the Rings. But I was moving towards a mystery and I'm hoping to get them to commit for next year. But they said no. So I wanted to bring you a mystery of my own in the story that we're going to talk about next. This is truly a mystery. I don't even know if it's a whodunit. This is a woman who was very complicated and a set of circumstances that's just difficult for me to untangle. I think you're going to have a lot of fun thinking about this case. And it's in California. Okay, I'm intrigued. His eyebrows just raised. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good 
thing. Uh, it's better than a grimace. Are you staring at the fish while I'm talking? <laughs> Which you should have never told me because now I have a keep, <laughs> I keep an eye on. Nope, don't do it, Paul. <laughs> okay, let's head to California. I'll go ahead and set the scene. Okay, this story, to be really a big tease here, this story is about the vast amount of possibilities of what happened in this case. It involves a pretty complicated woman. So let me tell you where we are in the time period, both of which are intriguing. This is 1929, so we're in the middle of the Great Depression, and this is in um, a white farmhouse in Fairfield, California, which is near Napa. Have you ever worked near Fairfield before? I used to live in Fairfield. Oh, I didn't know. My, is that another thing I'm supposed to know that everybody's going to everybody's going to message me and say, "You idiot! How did you not know that?" No, you know. Well, people probably know that I lived in Vacaville, but Vacaville and Fairfield are like twin cities. They're right next to each other, right outside of Travis Air Force Base. In the summer between my seventh and eighth grades, uh, my dad got stationed at Travis Air Force Base, so I moved from San Antonio, Texas, to Fairfield, California, and of course. You know, went through high school there uh, at Vanden High School, which is sort of a fed primarily by military brats out of the Travis Air Force Base, but also from Fairfield kids and Vacaville kids. So kind of commingled. But I know Fairfield very, very well. Okay, well, this will be interesting. And I wonder if you've even heard of this house because it's apparently pretty well known. So this involves a woman named Edith Irene Wolfskill. And she's 57 years old. And in the middle of July, she goes out for a walk. So she leaves this white farmhouse, which is near Napa, beautiful area. And just to set the scene for the house, it's got a really cute gingerbread trim and a big wraparound porch. And it's in the vineyards. And, uh, you know, there's peach orchards everywhere. It sounds just beautiful. She is very wealthy. Very, very wealthy, she and her family. But it's down to just Edith and her two brothers, and we'll talk about them in a second. She's a huge walker. She loves to hike. She wants to go by herself. She never wants company. So she walks in the countryside often, and people never worry about her when she goes out, it seems. But she leaves in the morning, and she doesn't come back for lunch, which seems concerning for the staff that is in the house. They get worried because she hasn't been back in a few hours, and they immediately call the sheriff, which to me, just at first blush, if you have somebody who says they'll be back for lunch and then they don't show up, there must be something about that person that is alarming because I think even if somebody I knew now was delayed for an hour, I might just think they were running behind or maybe they just got lost. But their first instinct of the staff is to call the sheriff immediately. Well, that would suggest to me that Edith has a very, very regimented schedule. And if she says, I will be back in an hour, she has a history of being back in an hour. Mm -hmm. And yes, I, I think for a 57-year-old woman, if she goes out for a walk and she's not back in an hour, I think the average person would go, oh, yeah, you know, it's taking her longer today, you know, or she's talking to somebody or maybe she diverted and is doing something else. Mm -hmm. So for the staff to call so quickly, that really is surprising to me. It informs me a little bit about Edith. Definitely. So just for background, Edith comes from a very wealthy family. Her grandfather was one of the first white settlers in the Solano Valley. 
And her father and her uncle controlled this massive swath of land and built a very large family fortune. And I mean large, like about 50 million by the time people pass. I mean, that is big. 50 million our money. So she is described at one point, of course, as a beautiful young woman with dark hair and gray eyes. She grew up in San Francisco. She was educated in Paris. And the money part of this is important because Her father died in 1913, so this is 16 years earlier. She was about 40, and she's got these two brothers, Matt and a man named Nay, Wolfskill. And they end up, the three of them, splitting his estate evenly. So it was 1.6 in 1913, and now it is, today money, it is almost $50 million dollars. So the three of them split this money. Matt and Nay do not get along. They are feuding over the money starting 1913 when the parents die. And um, now you've got these two people who, in theory, are motivated to make Edith go missing, if that's what's even happening in this case. But let's assume something bad has happened to her. She has gone missing into the countryside. That's why I wanted to bring up money now, is now you don't have someone who seemingly has enemies. You have someone, though, who has a lot of money, and people know it, everybody knows it, and she is out hiking around by herself. What kind of is drawing my attention at this point, you know, of course, the victimology side, here you have Edith with a lot of money. She goes missing. Staff reports are missing right away. Of course, that that financial aspect can be a motive within the family for Edith to go missing. But with the staff reporting her so quickly, I'm starting to sense that maybe there was some prior incidents that caused the staff to have concern so quickly. Is there any information along those lines? Yes. Ah, okay. You're hitting the nail on the head here. So let's leave Matt and Nay behind. They haven't spoken in decades, but they have to talk just very briefly every once in a while because they are in charge of Edith's care. So she is 57 and she suffers from a severe mental illness. And she's under a nurse's care, but their father put these two brothers who can't stand each other in charge of whatever she needs. And I'm assuming paying for the staff and distributing money. And this is why the staff is alarmed, because she shouldn't be going out by herself without checking back in. And she didn't check back in and she's gone. So background on mental health. In her early adulthood, so, you know, this would be probably 20 or 30 years ago, her mental health began to deteriorate. You know, remember, she was raised in San Francisco. She went to Paris. So shortly after, it sounds like being educated in Paris, things started to fall apart. She became obsessed with religion, and she would roam the streets of Fairfield or San Francisco, wherever she was, shouting out Bible verses. She had been checked into inpatient facilities in Belmont and San Francisco, and she escaped or wandered away from both multiple times. And each time she was found unharmed. So what is that? Without us both being psychiatrists, what do you think is the danger here to her being in the countryside and not returning from the point of view of a nurse? 
Well, I think, you know, just from from my perspective and what I'm trying to key in on is here we have Edith who goes out for a walk in an area that she is familiar with. She's been living here for a while. With the mental illness, is there a possibility of her getting lost, you know, where now she she blanks? And then, you know, we have these types of situations where we have people who do wander away and ultimately they isolate themselves and die, you know, out in the middle of nowhere. And then their remains are found at some point later, uh, sometimes decades later. And so even though we have this financial aspect with Edith and possibly financial motive for harm to, to happen to Edith because of the, the brothers, the family situation, situation with her mental illness, I'm wondering, is there a possibility where literally she disappeared herself, you know, just got lost and now nobody knows where she's at because she's out wandering. Because this is a very isolated area, this Mancus Corner area where her house is at, Mm -hmm. especially in 1929. But even today, you know, this is really an agricultural area. Um, These ranch homes are very distant from each other. So I imagine in 1929, she's pretty much out there, you know, by herself if she's out wandering. And is it possible that she just, you know, fell into a creek or, you know, got lost into the, you know, the woods or in the hills that are a distance away? So that's really where I'm kind of coming from is, okay, how does her mental illness impact her ability to to find her way back home? Okay, well, let's keep talking about this. Matt and Nay, unfortunately, have to coordinate their schedules. So when I said they didn't talk for, you know, a decade or two, they can't talk about anything involving their relationship. They have to coordinate their schedules because they can't stand each other so much that they can't both visit Edith at the same time. So it's a lot of acrimony between these two brothers, but they both seem to care for Edith is what it sounds like to me. A little more information about her. She and and kind of the reaction of Fairfield to her in general, she's known around town as the, quote, empress of the world. Some people say she gave herself that title and it's a delusion. Others say people gave her that nickname, but she seems to be accepted and she's known as kind of the town eccentric, very harmless, the rich, kind of quirky, eccentric lady. Nobody seems to have any problem with her at all. She's not really interfering with people, but everybody knows she likes to go out for long walks and hikes. She comes back dirty. She's known around town, which is interesting, as a powerful hiker. So after she goes missing, people say, this woman knows what she's doing. She knows where she's going. She's tall. She's wiry. She's strong. And people see her all the time on the trails. So when we say delusions or anything like that, is it possible that someone who knows these trails and who's been doing this for years can really get lost because of the mental illness? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, well, that's so hard to say, but I would say it's entirely possible, you know, for somebody who's suffering in such a way that even though this is an area that she's familiar with, it's possible that she has an episode, mm-hmm. you know, some sort of mental break and now does get lost, even though it's an area that she's familiar with. You know, what's a little bit striking to me, again, knowing this area is, you know, people 
are aware that she's out there hiking. Now, where her house is located at is quite a distance away from the Fairfield Town Center, Mm -hmm. you know, and and probably from the various neighborhoods that would technically be within the city limits of Fairfield, especially in 1929. So for a lot of people to be aware of her hiking these trails, yeah, that's surprising to me. It sounds like this must be an area where the citizens of Fairfield would go out to. It's a beautiful area. So it's probably a typical area where now in 1929, people are flowing out of the city, hiking those trails, running across her. But could you have somebody who has bad intent be aware that she's out there, she's isolated and alone? You know, so now I'm kind of throwing in maybe another possibility of what happened to her. You know, do you have brothers that maybe if she goes missing, they financially benefit. You have her mental illness and possibly she got herself lost. Mm-hmm. Or do you have a a bad person that takes advantage of a victim of opportunity who happens to be out in this very uh, remote area? The sheriff immediately responds because of the affluence of the family. The sheriff is concerned she's been kidnapped. That's the first thing he thought. They're waiting for a ransom note. He thought she was going to get kidnapped because everyone in the town knows she's rich. Everyone in the town knows she's vulnerable. And everyone in the town knows that she goes on walks basically every day and hikes. And not just walks, but hikes deep in. So I looked into cars in 1929 because I thought, okay, if she is kidnapped, 1929, how many people have cars? It sounds like a lot of people. One in five people had cars. Basically, there was averaging one car per household. So cars would not have been surprising at all in 1929, which is why people in town know her, because they certainly had at least one car and a driver, I'm sure. And then I'm sure that whoever interfered with her, if that's what happened, probably could have had at least access to a car. So that adds another possibility. If someone snatched her on the trail, somehow subdued her and put her in a car, that would not have been shocking, I think, to anybody. Let's talk about the kidnapping. The sheriff says, boy, that's what this sounds like to me. And they keep watch at the house. They keep watch pretty much everywhere Edith would have gone for somebody to drop off a ransom note. No ransom note. So within a day or two, they cross that off the list. They immediately start a search. Everywhere that Edith has ever gone in the countryside, we have searchers fanning out everywhere. Airplanes searching from the sky. They find nothing. The bank where Edith kept her money puts up a $1,000 reward for information, which is 18000 today. So this is not just missing white woman syndrome. This is missing rich white woman syndrome at this point when people are sounding the alarm. And I'm sure there are a gazillion people of color who have gone missing and not even remotely like this. But I have never heard of a bank putting up money before. Does that sound unusual to you? That is very unusual. She may have a a personal relationship with some of the employees of the bank or the managers of the bank, but then also the financial side. You know, do they have concerns about the the impact on the financial status of the bank if this money ends up being withdrawn, you know, something along those lines. I would go with the financial aspect. This is probably where the whole family keeps their money. And so this is a good faith. We're behind you you know, this is how much we care about you. I don't want to be cynical, but that's what my guess would be. Yeah. 
Okay, let's flash forward a week. So now we are in July 20th. So let me ask you, July 20th, Solano Valley, what kind of temperatures are we talking about, do you think? When I was living there, we are now getting into a very hot period. It's now getting into, in the summertime, let's see, July 20th, high 90s to uh, low 100s and could spike up to between 110, 115 during this time of year. Okay. So this is getting dangerous for Edith, which explains why she left early in the morning and they expected her back by lunch. And when she wasn't back, I'm sure they worried that she was suffering from at least dehydration if she got hurt on the trail, right? Oh, yeah. No, for sure. Part of the reason I moved out of California was the summers were just getting too hot. As I got older, I was just like, I can't deal with this heat anymore. And Edith is older than I am now. So I can imagine that if she's out there, if she's lost and now she's in temperatures that are approaching 100 or exceeding 100 degrees, she's going to be suffering. Hmm. Well, let's talk about what they find on the trail a week After she is last seen, which just must be worrying, I don't know about her brothers, but at least worrying to the staff and the nurse who is reporting her missing, um, a week after she's last seen, they find tracks that were, quote, definitely made by a woman. (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, that's just where for somebody to draw a conclusion you know, of gender based on shoe impressions or stride length, that's just wrong. You can't do that. I'm 5'10", I wear a size 8 shoe. Let's just say that. So Is that small? It's on the smaller side, you know, but it's not excessively small for somebody of my height. But there are plenty of women that have my size feet, mm-hmm. you know, or larger feet. So, you know, there's just nothing within... You know, shoe impressions or gait, you know, anything that you could measure in which you could narrow down, you know, a a gender. And just a side observation, they have been searching for her for a week unless they excluded women from helping in this search. How do they know it's not a Kate Dawson out there searching and that's my shoe impression (laughs) versus Edith's? It just doesn't make any sense to me. And then the sheriff really goes on a limb and says that these shoe prints are only a day old and that they certainly do exactly match a shoe that Edith is known to wear... (laughs) I mean, this just seems like really far out, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is legit. Yeah, you know, it, well, it is far-fetched, especially a week out, you know, and, and then to try to age shoe impressions. I mean, there are indicators to indicate something is reasonably fresh because there's still a lot of detail. And if there's been, mm-hmm. you know, weather, whether it be wind, whether it be rain, you know, that, of course, that can impact details within a shoe impression. So you kind of get a sense for, yeah, it, th- this impression looks somewhat weathered, but it seems like the sheriff is is stretching. So they follow these mysterious female shoe prints, and the prints cross a road in Gordon Valley. Do you know Gordon Valley since you lived in that area? Is it nearby or, or what? Where her house is, uh, this Mancus Corner area, this is in somewhat of a valley, and it appears that there's just various, depending on where in this valley you're located, it has different names. But as you go north from where her house is located at, that's where I'm starting to see Gordon Valley Road, Hmm. Gordon Valley Fire Station. So it appears that that is a specific 
valley in this series of of hills uh, as you go north. So they say that the track crosses a road, but then the shoe prints are completely lost after that. And this is four and a half miles north of Edith's home, which I thought four and a half miles. I don't. Did she travel that far? But then just yesterday, I was at my dad's farm and <laughs> walked about six miles just trying to walk the land. And it was not, I was meandering and it didn't take that long. So that's not out of the ordinary. I just don't know if this is anything to go off of, but I guess it's something for the sheriff. He's just trying to get this family any kind of information. Yeah. And that may be the pressure he's under, you know, and he's now going, I don't know what happened to her, but I need, as a sheriff, I need to be able to give the family, give the public information to show that I'm at least trying to do something. Yeah, But again, I think to try to associate these shoe impressions four and a half miles north of her house back to Edith a week later, he's grasping at straws. I think grasping at straws is a great phrase to use here. But I think we get another step here that might have more solid information, but we'll see. So the same day that they find the tracks, which is a week after she went missing, there's a woman in Saratoga, which they say is 90 miles south of her house. There's a woman in the, in the town of Saratoga that tells her local sheriff that a woman who fit Edith's description had spent the night at her house and left the following morning Five days after she went missing, she introduced herself not as Edith Wolfskill, but as Edith Kelly. Her middle name's not Kelly, but that certainly doesn't mean she didn't make up a last name. And this woman claims that a woman named Edith Kelly, who matched Edith's description, stays the night at her house and then says she's going to L.A. the next day. So what do you think about that? So Saratoga is basically south west of San Jose. This is a distance away from Fairfield. So how much publicity did this case of Edith going missing get in the Bay Area? Why is this woman who lives all the way you know, past San Jose saying, hey, somebody matching Edith, this missing person, Edith, stayed with me that night? Mm-hmm. There's a reason this woman came forward. And so I, that's what I'm trying to figure out is what is that reason? A lot of publicity and one of the wealthiest families in this part of California. And think about the reason that the media cares now about this kind of story. Rich, white, I mean, I hate the phrase high-risk lifestyle, but someone who you would not look at and say, this could have happened to this person and a big mystery. The media loves that, especially in the 20s where it's you've got the Hearst newspapers and the yellow journalism. So this had spread everywhere. The story was a really big deal. So yes, she would have read about this story and then gone to her sheriff. Okay. And, and so when we've had these types of cases, you know, and I've, I've looked at similar cases out of my jurisdiction, you know, these unsolved cases, we do have people that come forward. And sometimes these people are well-intentioned, but they've misidentified who they think is the missing person. Mm -hmm. And there are people who come forward because they themselves want attention. They insert themselves into the investigation and they are lying. And so that's what I'm trying to do is, is this woman somebody that, uh, you know, the information she's providing, you know, there's good veracity to it, or is she just an attention seeker? 
Well, and one other note to make here that I was thinking about, I don't read any evidence that Edith had any connection to L.A. And when she's gone missing, like from these facilities, these mental health facilities or from her house or anywhere, it's not like she's gone far. She was located pretty quickly. This, I think, would require her to catch a ride to Saratoga and then would require her to catch a ride or take a train or or something to L.A. because it doesn't sound like she drove. I'm sure she had a driver. So the name fits and the description, if you believe this woman fit, but that's about it. This doesn't seem to fit in her character very much. Yeah, and, and this also goes back to what would be Edith's motivation to just disappear. And from an investigative uh, standpoint, this is where you'd end up having to follow the money. Because if she's just deciding, okay, I'm done with my brothers. I just want to get out of here. Or maybe she is got some sort of paranoia, some sort of mental condition. But she likely is going to have access to her funds. Mm -hmm. Even if she goes all the way down to LA, she's still going to have to have some of her money in order to survive. And so that's where, okay, the sheriff is going to be needing to get access to what kind of activities have occurred in her account and let's say the year prior, as well as what activities are occurring to her account after she's gone missing, if any activities. If she's sneaky, and I don't think she is, if she's sneaky, she's withdrawing cash every month, small bits of it, and just hoarding it. But, you know, we don't have credit cards anymore. I don't know if she used checks But this would have been, I think, seemingly easier because she could have drawn out money and then (laughs) who knows? Let me tell you something else about witnesses. So at the same time as this woman says she was in Saratoga, someone else reports seeing Edith on July 18th, which is a few days after she went missing and before the tracks are found. He says she was 150 miles in the other direction in Red Bluff which is just north of Edith's house. It's a gas station owner. He says a woman came to him matching Edith's description and said, can I change my clothes here? And he said, sure. So so now she's going the, so what is that, 240 miles she's traveling? If you're believing both of these people, it just seems really odd. And yeah, I guess it is coming back to the unreliable witness here, right? Yeah, no, that's that's exactly what's going on. And, you know, with this high profile type of missing persons case, these are the types of witnesses that always come forward, you know, and, and now it's really, okay, do we have enough detail to or have confidence that this is Edith? And, and right now I'd say no, you know, I'd say both of these witnesses, that seems like it's sketchy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's get back to Matt and Nay, who I don't know still how I feel about them. I I don't get a clear picture. It doesn't sound like they have acrimony toward her. It's just each other. But I also am not getting a clear picture on how much, you know, if they're visiting Edith to fulfill something from their father after he died or if they really care about her, but they are pissed at each other. They both are called into the sheriff's office and there are reporters there and Matt and Nay start fighting physically and yelling at each other. Nay is blaming Matt for hiring the silly nurse who Edith ran away from, who sounded the alarm too late. And he thinks that she has died from exposure. Matt, the other brother, says, you're crazy. I think she's been kidnapped. It's too much of a coincidence that this wealthy woman who's really vulnerable is gone. And everybody knew that. So the sheriff says, I don't know what the hell to think. And he separates both of them. I still think 
these two guys should be on the radar, and I don't think they are with the sheriff. They have the most to benefit from her death. Yeah, you know, but their relationship is troubling. You know, they don't like each other, so it doesn't sound like these two would coordinate and cooperate in order to get rid of Edith. And with what you are saying is they individually adored Edith. She's the one that they both like. They don't like each other. It it almost seems like if Matt and Nay were looking to further their financial gains, is that they would be knocking each other off and not Edith, right? Mm -hmm. That's where their involvement in Edith's disappearance right now, I don't know if I'm putting a lot of weight on that at this moment. I wouldn't eliminate one of them decided, well, she's an easy target. She goes out by herself. She's got mental illness. It's easy to come up with an excuse of why she went missing that doesn't bring suspicion on either Matt or Nay. Mm -hmm. She got lost and yeah, she died out there and We just haven't found her body, and therefore now her inheritance gets divided between these two brothers, I'm assuming, based on whatever Edith Will said or whatever, you know, the family dynamics are. Uh, But they're not cooperating. At least right now, I don't see Matt Denae cooperating to get rid of Edith for financial gain. I think one or the other would have acted independently. And what's interesting is you would think with the amount of hatred these two guys have toward each other that they would blame each other. That's what I would do. He did it. He did it. And I mean, then you've got the whole fortune to yourself. But obviously, they're not suspecting each other. You would think that's the first place they would go if there was any kind of a red flag that anybody saw that one of the brothers was involved. So I guess not. Well, and and they probably are aware that each one of them has a loving connection to Edith. Yeah. You know, so maybe they're not suspecting the other one being capable of causing Edith any harm just because they know they both like Edith. Yeah. They just know they're capable of being jerks toward each other, essentially, through this whole time. Yes. The 2020s are getting stressful. What if we go back in time to the 1920s? All those flapper dresses, champagne towers, and good old-fashioned whodunits. Now is your chance with June's Journey, the mobile mystery game that puts your detective skills to the test. This game has everything. You'll play as June Parker investigating the murder of her sister. You'll travel the world searching for clues and explore lavish estates and beautifully designed scenes from the Roaring Twenties. Each is filled with hidden objects that may lead you to the killer. There are twists, turns, and even catchy tunes. And if you play well enough, you might make it to the detective club. There you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. Okay, now we're getting to somebody more credible because now we're going to turn towards the sad part of this story. 
Not that a missing woman isn't sad already, but we take a bad turn here. Two weeks after Edith disappears, two weeks. So now we're talking about very hot, you know, July 23rd, getting to be late July, very hot Solano County. Two weeks after she disappears, there's a rancher whose property is very close to the Wolf Skills property. He says he saw a woman matching Edith's description picking blackberries in some bushes. He tries to approach her and she took off. They call off the search around about after that. They said, we just, we can't do it anymore. The sheriff asks all the local hunters, just keep an eye out because we know hunters find stuff when they're out there. So that's where we are. They say two weeks later, this guy says she was picking blackberries. I'm pretty sure that was her. Two weeks without contacting anybody at all or wandering home. This rancher, does he know Edith or is he just also somebody that is aware that Edith has gone missing, you know, in this area where he has a ranch and sees a woman? If he knew Edith, then I would probably put greater weight on him saying, hey, I just saw Edith. But if he's just following this story in the press, I don't know. I I have a hard time seeing Edith living off the land for two weeks, eating blackberries and drinking creek water. I I don't know. That doesn't seem like that is Edith. Okay. Two months later, this is not good news, September 19th, there is an 18-year-old young man who is the son of a neighboring rancher who's walking along a dried-up creek bed. He's looking for a stick to knock fruit off. So I know you're going to look at a map right now. He finds her body, badly decomposed. And I want, first of all, before I say it's a mile and a half from her house, just a mile and a half from her house, I'm surprised the animals did not take off all the... I'm surprised there's anything left. Or do I not know enough about two-month-old bodies in the heat of the summer to know what I'm talking about here? Well, her body is found, but do you know the condition of her body? You know, it it badly decomposed. Now, in this particular area, we've already talked about the heat. It's also a dry heat. So a body that is just laying on the surface, there is going to be animal predation. There's going to be insect activity, but there's also going to be a desiccation as the body is exposed to this heat, almost like a mummification. And so I can visualize what she pro- her body probably looked like. But right now, do we have animals that have dispersed her remains or is her body mostly intact? Let me explain what they see. She's still wearing clothing and it's very mysterious. She is able to be identified by a cousin and his wife because of her clothing. But I also have information on the remnants of what's left of her. Do you want to hear that? I'm assuming you want to hear that first. Of course. Okay, of course. So the sheriff says this seems like foul play, but I can explain that also in a minute. So Edith's body is found face down with her legs dangling over a small mound of dirt or a little small hill. Does that make sense to you? Can you picture that so far? I can picture it for sure. One article says that one of her feet is missing. The investigators say they think that's either because of a small amount of water that's flowing through the creek or because, of course, the animals, there are wolves all over the place. There are three surgeons eventually who look at her body, and one of them says that her neck had not been broken, and he and another pathologist say they found a blood clot in Edith's brain. They don't specify whether or not this killed her, but they said it was interesting. 
And that's kind of the end of this. She is fully intact, except for the foot. She is wearing a lot of clothing, more clothing than I would have thought. And she's in this dry creek bed. And they're not indicating that there's any injuries, like anything that suggests a blow to the head? The skull has to be there if they're looking at the brain, but they're not saying any of that. No kind of injuries, not a blow, not anything. So the blood clot in the brain, I mean, is it possible while she was out walking, she had a stroke? Maybe. I mean, it says <laughs> the other thing they're trying, they're really going to start trying to rule out murder here. They're saying that there are no broken bones and no poison. Those are the things they were able to test for. But maybe there's more information both about the clothing and kind of where she might have been, which I find really interesting also. Yeah, because right now, you know, right now we don't have any indicators that today a pathologist would be able to say homicide. Mm-hmm. Where I would be turning my attention is where is her body located? How is it positioned? Is this something that would be consistent with her putting herself at this location? Or is it more consistent with somebody else putting her there? You know, are there some indicators to indicate that she had been interacting with somebody? I mean, was her body disposed at this location versus her just dying at this location? Well, one of my questions is, so she's found face down with her legs dangling over this mound. I thought, I wondered if one of her feet were missing, if her legs are on the mound, I don't know if somebody put her there or not, but if her legs are on the mound because maybe a wolf grabbed and tried to drag her and kind of ran into this mound and then left her when he got her foot. But I was just shocked that she was totally intact except for this one foot. With all of the animals out there, that doesn't surprise you? No. When you start dealing with the small animal. And you said wolves were all over the place. Well, as far as I know, they're not all over the place there today. Okay. How these animals, you know, why they focus in on on select body parts, it all just depends. When you are dealing with that larger type of, of predator, such as a coyote or a wolf, they're going to take their time with the body. Versus if you're dealing with a smaller animal, let's say a rodent, Mm -hmm. you know, they're more skittish. And so they'll come out, they'll nibble, and then, you know, a shadow of a bird flies overhead, and then they go back into their their hole, you know? Mm. And so the focus on just the foot, that's where I would need to see photos. You know, is there an explanation why the animal focused just there? Was it near a location where a rodent is just kind of accessing a, a readily available body part in a way that lowers risk to that smaller animal? Mm -hmm. Or is there something more going on? Did she have an injury there? And that's why the animal got focused on on that particular part of the body. Right now, I'm still kind of in this, are we dealing with a homicide or are we dealing with a natural death? Are we dealing with an accidental death? Did she trip and fall, you know, and and now has an internal hemorrhage, intracranial type of hemorrhage that caused her death. So it's it's still very nebulous as to what happened to Edith in my mind. Well, get ready to feel even more nebulous. (laughs) (laughs) I've got some bombshell information for you. So Edith's cousin, Reed, comes with his wife, and they are the ones who identify the body. The wife looks at her undergarments and shoes that can be identified. This is what's odd. So when she was leaving the house, according to the nurse, she was wearing a shirt and a skirt, which seems strange to hike in. But this is Edith. So we, you know, whatever. She's going to hike in whatever she wants to hike in. When she's found, 
She is wearing men's brown overalls, mostly worn by carpenters. So some of the articles, because this is her inconsistent, you know, some of the articles say that the shirt that she had been wearing when she left the house was found in the same creek bed about 100 yards away. Others say the shoes were found near the body, but it sounds like everybody agrees that she is wearing men's overalls and we don't know where the skirt is right now. So these overalls are not Edith's. Nope. Now, this becomes very sinister. You know, on one hand, you know, let's say she's out, has a mental break, gets delusional, and steals these overalls from, you know, some surrounding rancher's property. But offenders, you know, when I start, you know, the types of cases that I I work, which oftentimes are predatory in nature, offenders will redress their victims Hmm. or allow the victims to redress before killing them. And so these overalls on Edith, is this, do we actually have a homicide? Is this a sexually motivated homicide? And now this offender has redressed her using his own garments. You know, 1929, they're not worried about DNA or anything like that. Mm -hmm. These overalls, at least the way I'm envisioning them, provide an easy uh, handle in order to manipulate a body. It's very easy to grab clothing to pick a body up versus having to try to grab, let's say, a nude body that doesn't have the clothing. So if you need to drag the body instead of having to grab the arms or anything else, you can just grab these over these these overalls and just move the body easily. So there could be a practical aspect why these overalls were put on her mm-hmm. on her if that's what's going on. So but now that opens up the possibility in my mind, okay, we don't have evidence of violence from the autopsy to indicate homicide. Right. But we now have something that, in my experience, is suspicious enough to where I have to consider, did somebody abduct Edith, kill Edith, and dispose her body? And I think now we can turn back to our last witness, the rancher, who I think all of a sudden is given a lot more credibility because this creek bed is not very far at all from where he spotted a woman who turned tail and ran when she was picking blackberries. So that was two weeks after she went missing. But the thing that we're going to want to know is, of course, where the hell was Edith if that was her for two weeks? And where did she get these overalls? The one thing that I I want to point out is, of course, now with, with her body, what evidence is with her body to indicate when she died. And most certainly in this day and age, we would be paying attention to the insect evidence. That would give us the best indicator, you know, but that's part of what I would be wanting to look at is, okay, we have a a witness that sees a woman on his property picking blackberries. Does the evidence support that Edith was still alive at the time this rancher saw the woman picking blackberries? If the evidence does suggest that, then that helps with the veracity of that witness sighting. And then why is Edith just out there? Mm-hmm. Why is she living off the land? Okay, let's get to some evidence that they find on Edith. They look all over her overalls. This feels very much like an Oscar Heinrich story where they're examining. He does this in a train robbery. He examines the overalls and finds a tiny note. They do the same thing. Actually, six years after, I wonder if they heard that story. Six years after, Oscar Heinrich finds this clue in a pair of overalls in a train robbery. 
the investigators search her overalls and find a tiny piece of paper. And the first thing that they say is they can't make out anything except the word and not, N-O-T. But they then use a chemical process that I need to ask you about. And in this chemical process, they find these words, do not give, dot, 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 do not show sympathy, dot, 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 do not speak to any nurse, dot, 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 do not speak magic, walk out, sleep only in the daytime and drink water, bathe before I dress, use gifts, shun all change. Nay, finally, says, whoa, maybe this is a problem. I don't know if she just wandered off. Maybe there is foul play, but he's not on board just yet. The sheriff is trying to gather more information. Here's the tricky part. One of the things is that this creek bed had been searched over and over again for what the sheriff says is up to two weeks, and they have never found Edith for two weeks up there. Private investigator actually says, well, really what I saw was they only did it for about a week and it was a few times. So if she were a victim of homicide, it sounds like somebody kept her. But I know that we're thinking maybe not. Let's talk about what happens on this property. There's a ranch that borders the Wolfskill property. The owner of the property is a guy named William Oakill, comes to the sheriff and says, I have a cabin and it's been abandoned for years. I never go in there. And he went in there and then had the sheriff go in there. And on the stove, there are eggshells and other food scraps. The bed looks like it's been recently slept in. And on the walls, there are various phrases that have been scrawled. And these look like words and phrases that Edith would have written on rocks. She liked to write on rocks and on fences during her walk. So it sounds like somebody was staying in this cabin, and it sounds to you like it's Edith. Is that right? At this point in time, I would have to believe it it likely was Edith, you know, especially with the the writings. If that's something that uh, she would do, this is really starting to sound like she at some point had a mental break and had some forethought in terms of, I want to just disappear. Mm-hmm. And uh, she either knew of the, about this cabin or she stumbled across a cabin while she was out there just hiding, if you will. So, you know, this is where, you know, when we start thinking, well, what ultimately happened to Edith? You know, right now, at least the the finding of her body and the the lack of any violence on her body, at least with what these doctors, I, you mentioned one was a pathologist, but I don't know how experienced these individuals, you know, are. Right. You know, right now it's like, well, in order to, to be concerned, this is a homicide. Well, you have to have evidence of a homicide. And right now we don't have that. We have more evidence of Edith. Right. Trying to just disappear because of her mental state and then in all likelihood, either due to exposure or due to a natural condition, this blood clot in the brain, she ends up dying while she's out there. Okay, but I have two things, one a pondering for me and the other one information I haven't told you yet. My pondering is, where did she get food? I mean, if anybody, if she wanders into town, which I'm not sure, it doesn't even sound like there's a town to wander into that's close. Where is she getting food, Paul? This is a place that's been abandoned, according to the owner. Where does she get this food? 
I would imagine in this area, like like I've mentioned, I mean, this is a, a very much an agricultural area, yeah. and there's probably chicken coops. Yeah, <laughs> you know, she could just be going into a chicken coop and grabbing some some of the hen's eggs. Uh, so it depends, you know. Does she have a loaf of bread? Did she, you know, break into you know maybe one of these ranchers' houses? Mm-hmm. But you know, in terms of a town. Again, the town of Fairfield is a distance away. She's not walking all the way out downtown Fairfield and then all going all the way back to Manka's Corner. No. She would easily be spotted. So I think she's she's living off the land. She's living off of the, you know, the the ranchers, you know, whatever she can access. And these blackberries, you know, th- these wild blackberries grow in this area. Mm-hmm. I had them, you know, growing in my uh, uh, yard at one point in the neighboring city of, of Vacaville. So at least right now, I'm not convinced that she's interacting with anybody. Uh, somebody's helping her, you know, or somebody has abducted her. I'm just thinking she's she's hiding and uh, she's just living off the land and whatever she can get access to from the surrounding ranches. So one other point that I want to bring up, there is another witness, another rancher who does not live far from this mysterious cabin says that three days after Edith disappeared, he heard a woman's screams coming from the cabin. Now, Edith, being Edith, this could have been alone screams, you know, delusions. I don't know. But that is the only really sinister thing that to me doesn't seem to have an explanation, except later on, if you believe the other rancher, she's out there picking blackberries, and we don't have evidence on her body of a stabbing, of blunt force trauma, guns. I mean, bullets, we don't have evidence of anything. I guess it could have been strangulation if she is murdered. Mm -hmm. We have that blood clot, which you said could have been, what, a stroke, essentially? It all depends on where that blood clot is. The condition of her body, if, if she has been out there and let's say, you know, say she was killed three days after she went missing and she's been out there laying in this location for two months, the likelihood that those remains would show evidence of strangulation is very low. Mm-hmm. Some of the structures in the neck uh, could still be there where a pathologist today would be able to say, oh, I, I see a, a broken hyoid bone or I see that the trachea has damage to it or things like that. But it's very possible she could have been strangled or asphyxiated in a manner in which these remains would not show the evidence. Uh, you know, the petechia that we would see in the eyes or mm-hmm. the congestion in the face or in the lungs. So I can't discount homicide it really now comes down to the totality of, of circumstances. And do you have Edith wanting to isolate herself due to her mental state? Yeah. And she runs across the wrong person who takes advantage of this victim of opportunity. That is absolutely a possibility. I would have to consider the totality of circumstances in order to determine, well, what really happened to Edith? I don't know what the motive would be if she is out two weeks later picking blackberries and running away from someone, it doesn't seem likely that this is someone who's kept in a cabin and, you know, being tortured in any way, if you believe that rancher. Nobody is reporting 
going to the bank and demanding money based on her. It just seems odd. I, you know, I mean, I know I kind of pitch this as a mystery murder, but, you know, most of the way through this, I started certainly thinking, I don't know, this seems like Edith managed to survive on her own for at least two weeks, which is a testament to her survival skills to go undetected They had searched that creek for a couple of weeks, then gave up. So it sounds like sometime between two weeks of her going missing and the two months when she was discovered, she must have wandered out there. Yeah. You know, as of right now, I I lean towards she purposely isolated herself and ended up dying in some manner. I'm not getting a sense that this is a homicide case at this point in time. And the Solano County coroner agrees with you. So she concluded in the inquest that, you know, there's no way to determine. It was a death from cause unknown is the way it was ruled. And she's buried next to her parents and her jerky brothers, who might have loved her but certainly did not love each other, are in a massive fight. And eventually they put all of her money, which is about $18 million today, into a trust. And I'm assuming, you know, their kids ended up getting it. So this woman, who it just sounded like at some point her brain was telling her, I have to go, I have to go, she went. And we don't know how she died or what happened, but she wanted to be out on her own terms. Uh, It's such a sad ending, but in her head, this seemed to be the right thing to do. Yeah, and and I think that that's really, you know, that note found in the overalls, you know, that really, I think, is the the primary clue as to what happened. Mm -hmm. She definitely wanted to just isolate herself. How she died, we don't know. Therefore, we can't say, you know, there's somebody involved in her death. Uh, You have to have evidence of homicide, and there is no evidence of homicide. It's just, uh, you know, kind of a, I could see early on, well, what is going on as the sheriff is investigating this? But as the clues start to add up, the finding from the coroner's inquest was ultimately the correct decision based on the information that you've provided. Well, you know, I always say I love a good mystery, and this is not a mystery that was appropriate for my children on New Year's Eve, but I came close to telling it because it is a big (laughs) mystery, and poor Edith through this whole thing, you know? I feel awful, and it's just a, a commentary on, you know, how far we've come with mental health treatment, and what a sad situation for this woman. Yeah, you know, but this is, again, you know, I think a fundamental message, because we talk about cases, and how cases are investigated with the information that was available during the the era in which the case occurred. Mm -hmm. And here in 1929, you know, part of any case is victimology. And, you know, the information about Edith, her her mental illness, her prior wanderings away from uh, institutions, you know, you see how her prior behaviors are predictive Mm -hmm. of what happened to Edith in this situation. You know, I think that really becomes a message. It's not so much the mystery of what truly happened to Edith. It's learning from Edith's case. So when we have other cases, like I mentioned the Bodfish case, Mm -hmm. there is patterns of behaviors that certain people will do. And that's where understanding the victim is, is, is so important to getting clues as to what really did happen. Well, next week we'll have a new mystery that, you know, hopefully will be as intriguing as this one. 
All right. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Kate. This has been an Exactly Right production. For our sources and show notes, go to exactlyrightmedia.com slash sources. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Research by Marin McClashen, Ali Elkin, and Kate Winkler-Dawson. Our mixing engineer is Ben Tolliday. Our theme song is by Tom Breifogel. Our artwork is by Vanessa Lilac. Executive produced by Karen Kilgariff, Georgia Hardstark, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow Buried Bones on Instagram and Facebook at Buried Bones Pod. Kate's most recent book, All That Is Wicked, a Gilded Age story of murder and the race to decode the criminal mind, is available now. And Paul's best-selling memoir, Unmasked, My Life Solving America's Cold Cases, is also available now. 